Kumray, your host at the One Soccer Nation podcast, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Earl Cochran. Earl is the founder and CEO at Keynova Solutions. Earl, thank you so much for taking the time today. How's it going? It's my pleasure. It's going well. Nice. So um, I've known you for a few years now as a fellow Canadian. I've seen you on LinkedIn, but this is our first time, uh, our second time actually connecting online. Uh, so it's, it's a pleasure to connect with such a uh, you know such a seasoned person in the beautiful game. But can you just take us back in time and share how you got involved in the beautiful game? Sure. And I'll take seasoned kind of means old sometimes, doesn't it? You got a few. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think as I said to you before, um, you know, I've, I've been a fan of what you're doing. I've, uh, I've watched a couple of your podcasts, you know, so when when you reached out, I said, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. Um, you know, my history in this game is, you know, 50 years long, <laughs> right? I, I grew up in uh, in Scarborough, um, you know, one of two boys in a in a with a with a single mother. Um, raising two boys, two energetic, athletic boys. And uh, I can remember my first kind of introduction to the sport was wanting to kind of be around some of the friends that I grew up with, right? And, you know, finding the club locally that, that they all participated in it was probably around, you know, grade three, grade four um, when I started playing. Uh, and I played with that club for, you know, the better part of, 15, 16 years. You know, there's guys that uh, I grew up with uh, in the south end of Scarborough that I still am in contact today. We've got a WhatsApp group of, you know, 40, 50 guys um, and all of their relatives that we keep in touch with. You know, I have dinner pretty regularly with guys that I played with, you know, as a, as a, as a toddler and a, you know, a young teen. And so that connection to the sport has always sort of been there for me. You know, I went to school here locally in, in Ontario. I went to Carleton University, uh, played there. And it was, at a, it was at a strange time in the evolution of our sport, I think, where the NASL had gone away. Um, you know, the, uh, the CPL at the time was sort of on its last legs. There was a team in Ottawa when I went to school there, but they had just folded shortly after. Um, and there weren't really many opportunities in North America to, uh, to participate. And so I always had this feeling that I could play professionally at some point, you know, and, and I can remember making a decision at the end of school or at the end of my, my undergraduate degree, uh, you know, whether I go and take a shot and see whether I could make something of this sport or, uh, and I can remember when the application or when the uh, the letter came in from the University of Toronto saying I got accepted to to a master's program, whether I took that for sure thing. And I took the for sure thing, went to school, um, but always had this sort of inkling that I could probably play somewhere. And I can remember when I defended my thesis, I think it was maybe the next day I jumped on a plane and headed to uh, to Asia. And I sort of picked Asia <laughs> as a as a little bit of a fallback, you know, if, if, if it didn't work out here, I was in Southeast Asia, I had an opportunity to kind of bomb around for a little while, um, and enjoy myself and then come back and, and enter the real world. But as it turned out, you know, I was successful and, you know, made the team in, in Penang played a couple seasons, um, and then made my way from Malaysia to Japan, 
lived in Japan for a handful of years. Um, and then ultimately I was entrenched in the sport. Um, you know, made my way back to North America and ended up at, uh, at DC. So, uh, you know, it's in a similar way, my path and career path into the sport was, you know, not very linear, if that makes sense, you know, in, in a similar way that, you know, players develop, referees develop, you know, it's, you know, the development of, of your career path ends up being kind of windy and bumpy. Um, but I ended up in the sport pretty full time in the late part of the nineties, uh, in a wonderful place in Washington and have, haven't looked back. Amazing. You mentioned Scarborough, Ontario, that's in Canada for our overseas, uh, listeners. Um, with, with saying that, you know, transitioning from a playing career to a front office career is, is not an easy transition. What advice could you give uh, to listeners uh, that are currently playing that want to transition into the front office in the future? Um, I mean, I think be open to, to different things and different opportunities. Um, it, it's not really any different from, from most career paths in, in any industry. Right. You um, you get into an organization, you learn, you you absorb things like a sponge and you take risks. Right. Be not to be afraid of taking some some risky challenges and, and in some cases, taking yourself outside of your comfort zone um, to stretch yourself as an individual. And then that would be my my key advice is, is to take the opportunities when they come, even if they seem as though they may be risky at the time. But welcome them, embrace them, and and uh, and learn from them. Absolutely, your career spans from various roles, from CEO at Kinova Solutions to serving on the boards of FIFA, Concacaf, and you know when I hear those names, I get excited. How has this diverse experience shaped your approach to sports leadership? Um, for me, it all comes back to to people in the end. Right. You know, I think it's and, and it goes back to 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 when I was playing um, the bonds that you create, the friendships that you have, uh, the ability to learn um, from from the various people, from the diverse groups that you surround yourself with. Um, and when I say diverse, I mean, you know, the multiplicity of diversity, right, you know, diverse thought. Um, People come from diverse backgrounds and cultures, uh, diverse socioeconomic pasts. Um, and, you know, so my travels and my, my involvement in the sport over the last sort of 25, 30 years has allowed me to, to have conversations and meet people that, that have challenged in some ways, you know, my thinking. Um, and that's all been positive. You know, whether it's been Southeast Asia, whether it's been in, in America, uh, here in Canada, or the diverse cultures that, that you bounce up against every once in a while. Um, when you're involved in, in the sport as, for as long as I have been, um, you have to take those learnings and learn from you know, the diversity of the group that you surround yourself with. You mentioned being challenged, your thinking being challenged. What has you know been one of the biggest challenges that you faced in regards to uh, questioning that you, you went, wow, I really need to think about this one. It's a tough question. You know, I, I think 
I think when you are involved in a sport that has as significant as maybe ours is, um, and you come from a country like Canada, who, who you know isn't a traditional power in the sport, right? And and you you sometimes may question the the, the validity or the strength of of your thought and, and you know maybe your opinions and how they influence. But I've found as you as you have conversations with people around the world, and, and in some cases in in traditional powerhouse countries like Germany, you know, the UK, Portugal, um, Brazil, all of those people in 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 the sport are willing to listen and learn from from everybody else, and you know the the ideas and concepts that you may have, they're willing to listen to, and they're willing to to invite that different approach to things. Um, so having those conversations is is an important starting point, um, even though you feel as though uh, you may not have a place in 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 that conversation. I think it's important to have those conversations. Mm-hmm. That you know, having conversations like that is is are not always easy, especially when you when you feel that way. Um, but very true. As the CEO of Kinova Solutions. You focus on corporate and global affairs, crisis management, and sport diplomacy, if I'm saying that correctly. Can you share a specific in- instance where these skills were crucial in navigating in challenging, in challenging situations? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, risk, risk management and you know, crisis management, and they're not about avoiding risk or not about avoiding, you know, some of those things are inevitable. It's about preparing yourself for it. Um, and in some ways, you know, sport, sport diplomacy is, is sort of a concept that's relatively new. Um, you know, the America, I think it's the state department in the U S have a department solely focused on sport diplomacy. Um, other governments do the same, you know, the, the concept, uh, of using sport um, to bring people and countries and communities kind of together through those that shared love of you know the physical sport, um, and in some cases using um, that connection to implement policy and objectives uh, of what your country ultimately looks looks to do or what your organization looks to do, and I think where i where i really got a a quick glance of of what it was about was was really in qatar and in doha um you know and 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 qatar had sort of a 12 year window to to build toward a world cup in 2022 and there were a lot of questions about you know the significance of hosting a world cup in the middle east hosting it in um at the time it was being hosted um and a lot of questions most of which revolved around a term that gets used quite often, you know, sport washing. Um, and I think there's a there's a balance and a fine line to walk between you know sport diplomacy and and sport washing. You know, there's a there's a professor um, much smarter mind than me in this space, uh, Dr. Lindsay uh, Krasnoff. I think she's based out of the out of New York, um, who's who's very very bright and talks about this you know, more eloquently than I could, um, with a focus perhaps on basketball, but 
you know, when I look at Qatar's situation and the buildup toward the World Cup, what was lost on many people was the significant shift in policy, the significant approach to, to what they were looking to do um, that was ultimately affected by hosting the tournament and affected by sport itself. Did it go fast enough for some people? Did it go deep enough for some people? Perhaps not. But it shouldn't be lost that it did have an impact. And I think that impact that sport had on domestic policy, on the approach to, to certain aspects, um, I think was incredibly important at the time. And it's going to continue to be. You know, the, the host of, of the World Cup in 2034 is, is likely to be, you know, the Saudis. Um, but it doesn't really matter um, where these massive events are. The ability for the sport themselves to drive significant change, I think, is significant. And that's ultimately something that I'm looking to do. Absolutely. So much power in soccer. It's the most watched sport in the world. I, I don't remember the numbers correctly. I think it's, is it th 8 billion, 3 billion or 8 billion people that... It's people? significant. I mean, the numbers change depending on who you talk to. It's in the billions. Yeah. Um, driving change is definitely something that we've spoke about before, before this call. And you mentioned again, it, it, it seems to be a top priority for you. Um, where does that come from? Um, I think perhaps because the sports provided me with, with such a platform, um, and such an opportunity to grow, um, in a weird way, it's perhaps an opportunity for me to give back. Um, and, you know, I, I think back to, you know, going back to your original question about why I fell in love with sport. Um, there were moments growing up um, that I still remember incredibly fondly, right? Just being around people, um, learning from, from the diverse group that I had surrounded myself with. The friendships and bonds um, that are that are forged on a field, in a locker room, you know, on a bus, um, that really shape who you are, right? And, and you know, my time in in Southeast Asia, um, in many respects, created the individual who I am today, right? My time at university and surrounding myself with the guys I played with, um, it has a really, really strong ability um, to forge good in the world. And I want to be able to, to utilize, you know, the connections and relationships that I've built in order to grow the sport. Um, but not just grow it for the sake of, you know, padding numbers and, and increasing revenues to, to registration fees. It's about growing it in the right way, growing it in, in a way that provides everyone who participates in, uh, you know, a safe environment. Uh, a learning environment, an opportunity for them to develop in, in a similar way that I did, or at least I felt I did when I was a kid. Amazing. Yeah, I truly love that positive change in the world, which is important. I want to go back to 2022 FIFA World Cup Qatar. Did you have um, any involvement or did you just go uh, to to watch? No, I was involved with the team. I mean, originally there just prior to the tournament, there were a handful of meetings and conferences um, for most, if not all, the member associations uh, of FIFA. Um, and then I was embedded with the team for the duration of the time. So I, was at, I stayed at the team hotel um, 
you know, left them to do the things that they needed to do and, you know, used my opportunity there to, to have deep conversations with a lot of the member associations that were there. Um, I got to see the games, you know, obviously I got to be involved in, in the, uh, the tournament itself. Um, but one of the, one of the best opportunities was to, to be surrounded by, you know, the staff that we had sent over to, to, to help the friends and family pack people who had traveled with the team and, and, and the players, but also the fans that had been there and made the travels to, to Doha too. You know, walking through the Canada soccer house that we had created up the rooftop of a hotel um, was an excellent opportunity to just walk around and talk to people about the game, the influence of, of the game on them, um, and what it was going to mean for Canada in that sort of environment. So uh, it was a really good time. It was a unique opportunity um, to be a part of you know the first World Cup in 36 years. Uh, but it was a, again, another welcome learning opportunity that, that I'll be able to to take and build from. Got it. And when you say, you know, you mentioned uh, 36, uh, 36 years uh, since Canada has been in the World Cup. Um, so were you only helping uh, facilitate uh, Canadian uh, parents uh, be able to attend this event? Were you just focusing on Canadians or were you also just, uh, were you also uh, helping with other countries as well? Uh, there were conversations with other countries um, about a whole slew of things, um, you know, whether it was sort of governance related, you know, technically related, you know, how, how their organizations were structured. There was an opportunity to learn from the, the countries that were there. Um, I think it was an opportunity for us to establish ourselves as a group that wasn't just really good at hosting events but also an opportunity for us to be uh, interspersed with, you know, some of, some of the leading countries in the world and learn from them. How many people were you working with on the team? I think we had, so we had five or six of our staff that were there to facilitate um, everything that needed to happen for the friends and family of, of, of the team and their staff. Um, we had a significant staff on the ground to manage the team, and that was all in and around John. Um, and then we had both our president and vice president there as a representative of our board who were also doing similar things that I was doing. Got it. Um, wow, this this is so cool. The the amount of experience that you have in the game is 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 huge. Like this isn't something new to you. So you know, for an individual that wants to one day be in your position to have these experiences to work at FIFA to work at CONCACAF to work for the national team could you kind of give us like a little bit of a blueprint in regards to steps that they need to take qualifications that they need to meet in order to one day be in a position like you I don't know if I can to be honest <laughs> you know I I think in a similar way and we talked about it earlier on right about how a player develops you know it'd be It'd be the same to say to to a young ten year old, you know, this is what you need to do to be a pro, um, and I think you miss all of the different opportunities um, that present themselves over the course of of a young career or a young a young life. Um, 
you know, there are going to be challenges and pitfalls that you hit. Um, and it's very difficult to just map out a trajectory. You know, and again, you know, these, these paths aren't linear in any way, shape or form. It's about taking opportunity and seizing that opportunity when you have it. But I think it's in, in a kind of macro way, it's about surrounding yourself with the right people, um, finding yourself or placing yourself into areas um, where there's growth and you're going to be challenged. And I think placing yourself or positioning yourself in places where you're constantly learning, right? Where you're constantly challenging yourself or finding that opportunity to grow as an individual. Um, and then again, not to be afraid to take some challenges or risks every once in a while, even if you think that you may not be, you know, fully prepared for it, um, dive in and, and learn, you know, and again, it, for me, it always comes back to people and relationships, uh, and your ability to, to be able to navigate all of those, to be able to have conversations, to be able to learn from, from everyone around you. Sometimes it means listening more than, more than talking. Um, but I think never, never losing sight of those opportunities when they do arise and taking them. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Having served as CEO or general secretary at Canada Soccer, what initiatives did you champion to enhance the sports landscape in Canada during your tenure? I mean, there's a handful of things um, that occurred, you know, since I've been involved in the game here in Canada that has significantly impacted sport. But I think one of the things that I wanted to focus on specifically um, as the general secretary was to sort of refocus our attention and our energy back toward our people and our staff. Um, you know, I felt as though, and, and maybe COVID had had a, a little bit to do with it, but there was, it felt as though we were losing focus to some degree about the people that actually made up Canada soccer. Um, and I think many organizations go through this, right? You, and again, it, it's probably not industry specific to, to, to our sport or sport itself, where you sometimes lose sight of the fact that the people and the staff that are, that are a part of your organization um, are the vital cog um, in what you do and what you deliver. And, you know, you can get caught up in dealing with third party stakeholders or members or, or, you know, supporters. And those are all vitally important, but taking care of your people and your staff um, and making sure that you're developing them as people and as managers and coaches of other people, providing them with the right tools to develop um and provide feedback to the people who report to them, uh, creating a culture that fosters sort of growth and personal development. Um, and a lot of that has to do with how you retain, you know, the talent that you've got, but it's not kind of solely focused on retention. Retention, retention is an important aspect, but there are people who stay with organizations for 20, 30, 40 years, um, 
but they're not staying for the right reasons. They're, you know, <laughs> I think if in some situations, if they were provided with another opportunity, um, they'd take it. And that's not, that's not the way you retain people, right? You retain people by making them feel engaged, making them feel as though they're a part of your organization, making sure you're retaining the right people in the right way that are fostering the right culture within your organization. Um, that was the focus of what we wanted to do. You've said it a few times, you know, working with great people, surrounding yourself with the right people. It, it seems like one of the keys to success, uh, successful formula in regards to the works that you guys are doing. I have a behind the scene question in regards to systems um, with yeah. uh, Canada soccer. Is there a, um, do you guys have like an all-in-one platform that you guys all connect to the database like that that one platform or do you guys use multiple systems uh to manage the works that you guys do at canada soccer um it, one of the things that we look to do i mean there are multiple systems that that are used um you know covid sort of drove us to 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 be able to operate um remotely right which which sort of forced everyone into a, a into singular platforms i think one of the one of the initiatives that that we really didn't have prior to me taking over was a focus on or the ability for for staff to be able to seek information out relatively relatively easy um there was no real hr structure uh and implementing that allowing people a place to go if if they had concerns, allowing a platform for them to to go and seek out the information that they were seeking, just from a policy perspective, um, became an important piece. You know, conducting um, workshops and and sort of classroom sessions on managers and managers of people being able to understand how to coach, right? How to develop. The, the people around them um, was an important step that that we had we had taken, and I think it was well received. Um, but you're right; I think having the opportunity to 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 find one area where or or a, a singular sort of platform where people can kind of seek information um, and and use to their advantage is a, is a vitally important piece. COVID-19 was a hard time back 2020 <laughs> for about it two was, um, you know, I, I think about COVID and, and, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, running matches, uh, in, and, you know, coordinating games. And, and as you know, uh, you know, I, I, I do that, uh, I did it both here in Canada, but also worked for FIFA and CONCACAF as a, as a match commissioner. Um, before and, and you know, understanding the massive amount of work uh, and how multifaceted running an event is um, pre-COVID or post-COVID. I mean, I, I hate to say post-COVID because I don't think there is a post-COVID, but you know, prior to COVID was a challenge. You know, security, logistics, ticketing, marketing, staffing—you know, all the things that go into running a match. Um, it's one thing to do it. Uh, every weekend because you you get into a, a sort of cadence and it becomes 
sort of almost formulaic in some ways to run a match at a, at a club. But when you do it for a national association or a, or, or a member association in, in a FIFA qualifier or a CONCACAF qualifier, uh, it's a different animal. When you layer in COVID, as we had to do sort of the early part of the during the run up to to qualification for for Qatar, um, I think back to the game in Hamilton. You probably remember you know, the game in Hamilton. It was, I'm guessing, because it, probably a week prior to the game where we were 100% certain we were going to host the game in Hamilton. Um, just because of, you know, the COVID restrictions, we had fallback plans to whether we were going to host it in, in, in Costa Rica or Mexico or in America. Um, we certainly didn't. Yeah. And, you know, when we first built and started planning for the game in Hamilton, we were operating on the assumption that we could have a full, we would have full capacity. And then we were operating off the assumption that it would be 50% capacity. Um, and then it was 50% capacity, but spread out of over, you know, hundred percent of the building. And so all of those things create massive challenges around ticketing and seating and, and hospitality and, you know, security. And so the stress and strain on, on the game operation staff and the marketing staff around that event itself um, was enormous. And then you layer in the fact that you've got these COVID protocols that you need to adhere to. Um, you know, I, if you can remember back, and I might get this slightly wrong, but I think it was just as the government of Canada had implemented a sort of 48 hour um, period where you may have to stay in quarantine um, while your tests came back. The reality is that we weren't even on the ground for 48 hours and the teams weren't on the ground for 48 hours in Canada. And so we had to work with the government of Canada, with uh, the, the province of Ontario and the stadiums itself to work through solutions. And, and look, they were all fantastic. Uh, it was just a stressful and, and very straining time to, uh, to be putting on a match. Yeah, I, I spoke to Bill Manning about this a bit too as well. You know, I think you said it best in regards to laying laying over COVID through everything makes it 10 times harder. Um, just like some tomato sauce on some pasta. <laughs> Not as good though. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what key things did you take away from COVID though um, during that really hard time? Where Was there anything that you took away that you said, wow, I'll live with this forever? Yeah, I mean, the challenges of moving, you know, an entire team and an entire, you know, group. And again, we're talking about, you know, 23, 25 players, same amount of staff. Um, when you're talking about a group of 50, 60 people and the equipment that that, that comes with uh, in very, very tight windows, um, just the logistics of that. Uh, became very very challenging, and then you layer on, you know, the 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 nuances of testing, um, and you know what what it meant to not just testing a player, but making sure that they were safe and secure during the entire you know ten day twelve day window, however long it was, but also at the same time, you know, 
national associations and and their their staff, primarily the medical staff, uh, but also probably significant portions of the technical staff, have a deep dialogue with the players' clubs. And so coordinating all of that, the testing, letting them know how players were doing, um, what their plans were for getting back, navigating you know the different countries and their uh, and their own protocols and making sure that you were getting people from point a to point b in some cases it was point a to b to c to d to get them back to their club um because you had to navigate some of the covid challenges you know, one of the major issues we had was we had to qualify in in haiti right and 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 haiti um a wonderful place beautiful people um, but they were going through some significant challenges um, with the pandemic, but also um, they had a state of emergency uh, just because of some civil unrest. And so some of those challenges around coordinating not just the COVID reality, but the security realities on the ground were, were really, really testing on, on everybody. What's the, the biggest project? Uh, what's the most amount of people that you've managed? Um, I think within Canada soccer, uh, I mean, there was a, when I was at Toronto FC and, and, and Maple Leaf sports, um, we had a significant, uh, group of people within the technical side, um, and the sporting side that I managed, you know, Canada soccer staff is somewhere in the range of, you know, maybe 40 to 50. Um, and it was probably similar. Uh, when we were at Toronto FC, somewhere in that range. What advice could you give to me in regards to managing that many people? Um, well, I think big picture, managing 40 and 50 people is impossible. <laughs> I think, you know, you you find, uh, and, at, and at Canada Soccer, it was, it was finding, you know, a, a leadership team that ultimately managed, you know, another team who then managed another team. Um, it's important to find and surround yourself with the right group of people, the right leaders um, who you trust and who trust you and, and believe in, in the mission and the vision of what your organization is about. So I think the sweet spot is probably, you know, four to five um, where you manage direct reports um and then it branches out from there but i've also been a firm believer of you know not a very again you can probably tell i'm not a very linear kind of thinker um you know i've often thought that organizations are much more spider web than they are um you know pyramid or or kind of top down thinking you know there are there are places all over that spider web uh, where, you know, thoughts and ideas and strategies, uh, can evolve from, um, and anything that like a spider web, any, anything that happens on one particular point in that spider web reverberates across the organization. And so you've got to think about not just the way that you build your organizations or the way you build your strategies and plans. Um, but the way that you allow people to lead and the way that you allow people's voices to, to kind of rise to the top, 
because there are there are great people and great minds and great ideas right across platforms. And the key is to be able to 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 find a way to get them to arise. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you for that, Earl. Um, you also worked at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, including managing director and general manager position with Toronto FC. How did you contribute to the growth and success of the team during your your, your time there? Yeah, it was a, a fantastic time at Maple Leaf Sports. Um, it was a fantastic organization led by some very, very bright people. Um, and in many respects, how I view the development of, of any organization um, is born from, from some of the great thought leaders that were there. Um, you know, it, it, the growth of Toronto at sea um, within the sort of larger Maple Leaf sports and entertainment family happened at a really interesting time. You know, it, the, the team kicked off in 2007 was our first year. Um, it was in some ways, looking back on it now, it wasn't at all. But I think in some ways at the time, many people viewed it as risky. Um, many people viewed it as perhaps not the, the decision um, that the organization should have been making at the time. Um, but fortunately, the one person who absolutely didn't believe that was, was Richard Petty, and he was the president and CEO at the time. And he will still stay, I guarantee you, if you ever had a chance to ask him, he would say today it was the best decision he ever made um, within the organization. Um, you know, the at the time, I had left MLS in 2001 um, to come back to Canada. And I have to admit, you know, the struggles and strains that MLS had gone through in the early part of the 2000s, um, I was surprised it, it was going to survive. And then when when 2005 and six happened and the thought about expanding to, uh, to Canada happened, Richard had jumped all over it. And I think it set off a growth in the sport, um, particularly in Canada, but, you know, from a wider lens in North America. To, to where we are today. And a lot of credit needs to go to the league itself uh, and the commissioner. And I've told him this um, on many occasions, that he doesn't get enough credit for what he did in those early parts of 2000 um, to stabilize the league and take it to where it is. A, a lot of people had a hand in doing it, um, but his steady hand on, on, on the wheel um, has led to, to kind of where we are today. You know, it's set the pillar for, for the successes of the pro game um, not just here in Canada, but in North America. And, you know, I think one of the things that we did that was vitally important to the growth of, of the league and the sport in this country um, was the way that we approached the development of the team itself. Um, I mean, it was very much uh, a startup. And again, the people who were involved were young and energetic um, and treated it just like a startup. I mean, it was exhausting work to get it to to where we were in 2007 to kick it off. But one of the things that I think I'm most proud of um, in what we did during that period was open up what we did 
and whether that was, you know, the significant work that Paul and his team had done to to engage supporters and, and build a supporter culture um, organically through those groups that had already been established, um, turning the the game itself as an entertainment property, um, trying to make sure that the game itself was the best two hours that anyone was going to spend in the city. Um, but what we did was we invited the teams, the existing teams in the league, but also the new teams that were coming, you know, the Seattle's, the Philadelphia's, the Portland's, um, the Vancouver's, Montreal's. Uh, we invited them to Toronto and we opened everything up for them and said, you know, over the course of 90 minutes, or over the course of a, an entire season, we were going to compete, but we were going to compete on field. You know, what we were going to do is share and learn um, from both the successes and mistakes that people make off field. And I think that is one of the biggest things that, that Toronto FC in the early days contributed to the growth of sport was that ability to share across teams and clubs and you know, right across the league to develop the growth of the sport. Um, and I, th I think you see it today, right? A lot of the teams share vital information, um, they recognize the fact that the league is only as strong as every component within that league. And so developing the league itself, and you see it not just in, in major league soccer, but you see it in the growth of USL, you see it in the growth of NWSL, um, what the CPL has done here in Canada. And then ultimately what a women's league may look like um, in Canada too. All of those lessons I think are something that will help the sport dra dramatically. Yeah, I'm interested to get your thoughts on the, the CPL, the Canadian Premier League. Uh, started back in 2019, so it's been about four years going on to five. Uh, what are your thoughts on the CPL? I think it's it's wonderful. Um, it was, you know, a, a much needed opportunity for domestic Canadians to be able to, to, to continue their growth in the game. Um, in many respects, and people forget about this, you know, regularly because it's it, history seems to kind of move far faster today than it than it did before. But the league is only five years old. I think they're going into their sixth season. Oh, six. Um, and three of those years, <laughs> two and a half, um, were significantly impacted by you know a pandemic and what they've managed to do and uh establish here um i think needs to be needs to be applauded i think they've got significant work to do to grow right um you know they they need an opportunity and i know that i'm not telling anyone anything that they don't already know um but to find the right people the right communities the right infrastructure um right across the country to manage that growth but to grow it properly. And I know that, you know, the, the leadership there fully understands that they need to have a presence in Quebec, for example, right? They need to be able to establish themselves in, in other markets. Um, even just, you know, the greater Toronto area can probably house, you know, a couple of other teams, you know, the work, the significant work that they had done behind the scenes to, um, to involve uh, the new group that took over from New York uh the york united franchise um the mexican group the the work that they had done you know 
a couple of years back to to get um, Atletico Madrid to invest. Um, they've been doing yeoman's work to to try to build and establish the league, and it's not easy. And you know this. Um, you know, establishing a club is a challenge. Establishing a league um, and doing what they have done, uh, I think it's uh, it should be applauded. Yeah, for sure. Talk about 2019. What a year to start, eh? Next year, COVID for the next two years and survive that. So shout out to the CPL. Do you think Brampton could house a team, a CPL team? Well, you tell me. I think we have the talent. But yeah, I, I think. You got the numbers. You have the behind the I scenes. think so. I, yeah. I like to call Brampton. Brampton is the new Scarborough. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, you know, when I was growing up, all of the things that, that you know, Brampton is today and, and you know, the types of individuals and, and players that it's developing is is phenomenal. And I again, I, I'll have to go back and look at actual numbers, but I think the significant number of players that played on that 2022 World Cup team that had come from Brampton is ridiculous. Like, it, it's something like, you know, 35%, 40%. Um, had ties or at some point, you know, lived in, in, in Brampton. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, shout out to Brampton. We, we create some top talent over here for Canada. <laughs> um, well, and I think maybe you could talk about this a little bit later too, about where sport is going, but you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see, you know, a cricket franchise pop up right. in sort of North Mississauga, Brampton at some point. Um, Whatever they're doing, and <laughs> whoever's doing it is doing a fantastic job. Hundred percent. Um, you know, again, you've been in the game for five decades. Soccer for the first decade of your your career was was is, is completely different from to where it is now. What has? Could you share one or three um, significant changes to the beautiful game? Um, I, I mean, I think speaking specifically here in Canada, um, I would say the professionalization of the sport, um, has, has changed significantly and yes, it's changed at the top end of the game. Um, but I think you find that you have better coaches, you know, coaches who have gone through sort of educational processes versus you know the coaches that i grew up playing under were basically parents right people who loved the sport um and wanted to give back now i say that you know my coaches were fantastic uh, you know i you know, what we did um was probably different from from the vast majority of clubs or organizations at the time but i think the professionalization of the sport um the impact that that's had on coaching, the, the technical development of players themselves. You know, you you go watch a game, you know, I, I go watch a university game, um, and the players are far better technically than than you know I was growing up. And I think, do they have other things that perhaps we had um, growing? I don't know the answer to that. But I think the one area and perhaps the next sort of biggest step for 
us is to, while taking care and, you know, understanding that the professionalization of the game is, is an important trajectory to be on, um, not losing sight that the development of the game at the other end um, is perhaps even more important. You know, the, the, cult, the, the creation of a football culture doesn't happen at the pro end of the game. You know, it happens at the early ages and entry level moments um, of the game. That's where I developed a love for the sport. That's where I developed, you know, a keen sense of this is what I want to be and this is who I want to surround myself with for the rest of my life. And so ensuring that young players who are entering the game and even probably prior to them entering the game, providing them with the right toolbox, you know, the right set of technical skills and comfort with a ball to then take advantage of, you know, that, that enhanced coaching, um, I think is a pivotal moment for us, right? The, the idea to recognize that three, four five, six year olds, um, can foster a love of the ball, can foster a love of the game. Um, and, and gain some technical sense and comfort with the ball prior to them being involved in in organized in organized football and organized soccer. And I think that will do wonders for the growth of the game, you know, the retention of players, the ability for people to want to stay involved in the in the game because they're far more comfortable in the environments that there are. Got it. Yeah, grassroots key. Um, before. So, so I think that's that's significant. You know, the the other the other one that I'll mention is the shift or understanding um, that our sport isn't just a game that's celebrated sort of within communities. It is, but it isn't just that. That it is entertainment, right? And I think it has evolved greatly in the last 10, 15 years into an entertainment product versus just a sporting event. And I think that that's a significant shift too. Yeah, and you know, Canada is growing more into it, same with the US with, you know, versus a UK base where they breathe, eat, sleep at Canada's growing growing every day into that, uh, especially with the next two years coming up to the 2026 World Cup. I'm not gonna ask you about that yet. We'll hold off that to the end as a fun question. Um, but a quick question in regards to your new company, Kinova uh, Solutions. Is that something that you're doing full time and you're not doing anything else, or? No, that is what I'm doing full time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so, as the CEO and founder of Kinova Solutions, what what inspired you to establish the company, and how do you integrate your passion for sports and entertainment in its mission and operations? You know, I, I think. What I've what I've created and what I want to do to impact um, sport um, is a culmination of everything we've sort of discussed, right? It, it's the goal and the ultimate goal is to make I was going to say make the sport better, but make world better through sport, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, and, and by that I mean. You know the the organizations themselves, the clubs, the federations, um, all of it. You know there are there are significant aspects of sport today, um, and I suppose you know 
society in general that in some ways feel broken or or, or feel disconnected um, in some ways from from how cultures are evolving and growing today. Um, in many respects, they seem um, like remnants of, you know, time past. Uh, you know, a lot of organizations are, are um, and it makes them, you know, a significant part of the, the community, but a lot of them are built off of hundred-year-old premises. Um, you know, or structures that don't particularly work very well or aren't congruent with society today. Um, you know, whether that is governance structures that are broken or or don't provide access um, or don't provide the right protections um, or voices to be heard within their organizations. Um, you know, in some cases and in, in, in some realms, there's there's a toxicity today that occurs. Um, and again, I'm not talking about something that's specific to sport. It, it's societal in many ways um, that I think needs fixing um, or at least needs attention. You know, I, I think that there's a tendency today that, you know, who can who can yell the loudest or perhaps even the fastest? You know, tends to be the one that seems to be telling the truth, um, and that mentality again is societal, right? And, and my focus is to get us back to a point where we are listening to each other, we are having conversations with people, um, building opportunities for us to learn from lessons of the past and develop new systems and new structures. And I'll, I'll use one sort of example. Um, you know, this kind of speaks to the toxicity of society today in some ways. But, you know, during the course of the last year and a half, I've had an opportunity to to have deep conversations with some people who aren't in sports specifically, but in, in global affairs communities and, and, you know, have worked in other areas uh, around the world. And they also love our sport. They also love football and, and see, you know, a, a hatred or, or a racist sort of toxicity building within the sport and want to find ways to, to solve and, and fix those things. Um, so I've been working with a handful of, of people who are incredibly bright, incredibly passionate about what they do about solving some of those issues. And I think, you know, just recently FIFA and FIFPRO released um, some of the information stemming from, from the Women's World Cup and some of the online abuse and, and hatred and racism that stemmed um, from that tournament. And I think that both of those organizations have done fantastic jobs in identifying the problem in in some ways shielding um the the players and the associations themselves from some of that vitriol that ends up online um but to me it's it's masking a problem that is ever present and growing right it's masking an issue that needs to be tackled and and handled um and handled in such a way that 
you know, isn't like we've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years. You know, we've been trying and rightly so regulating it and policing it and making sure that the people who are doing these things are punished. But we're not really dealing with the core issues and tackling, you know, the the origins of the problem. And I think that's what I'm working on with with this group um, who have been significant players in different areas around the world in some very, very serious things. And the hope is that we start to be able to build and change um, what has been learned in some ways, unlearning past behaviors to understand the, the impact and influence it has on people. And so it is one of those things that I'm vastly um, passionate about and will continue to do um, regardless of where you know, Canova takes me. It is one of those things that I believe uh, needs to be fixed and needs to be fixed uh, at least addressed urgently. Yeah, Earl, I really admire the work that you do and I appreciate all the works that you've done in the beautiful game. It, uh, it really inspires me. Uh, you're someone I want to learn from and hopefully you can advise me along my journey. Uh, with saying that, to end off on a fun question, we're seeing the Messi effect down in uh, US Miami, Florida. <laughs> we got yeah. two years before the 2026 World Cup. What are your thoughts? My thoughts on Messi? Everything. I mean, you had a, you had a little <laughs> smile, you had a little smile when I mentioned Messi. You had a little smile with the World Cup. Canada, Mexico, U.S. are hosting. So, just over, just overall, yeah. just big picture. I think it was. You know, I listened to. I, I think it was maybe when you interviewed Kyle Kyle Sheldon. Um, yeah. You know, a little while ago, and he had mentioned, you know, the the runway in North America over the next kind of four, five, six years. Right, and it's yeah. crazy. You know, you've got. You know, Copa America next year. Um, you've got a brand new women's gold cup, you know, happening at the same time or in and around the same time. You've got a club world cup uh, happening, an expanded version of the club world cup, which is going on right now in, in, in Saudi. Um, the world cup itself in 26, the potential of a women's world cup in, in 27 uh, in North America. Um, and then the Olympics in 28, just a crazy opportunity um, for our sport to evolve and develop in, in a very, very tight window with, you know, the eyes of the world focused on us. Um, you know, I, the move from, um, from Europe to North America for Messi, um, I mean, you've seen the reverberations of the move itself right within within our sporting landscape um and it's been significant you know i think i think that there is a there is a globalization of of i mean i'll say our sport but multiple sports you know you know cricket um is one of them um you know the the globalization of a sport like F1 that had sort of traditional bases in, in maybe Europe and and um, you see a shift ever so slightly from from the traditional power bases of where you know sport has kind of lived and breathed and you see it in you know professional fighting you know golf tennis um, within 
our sport itself and the shifts around the world, the influence of Asia, the influence of, of the Arab world, the influence of North America uh, on all of those sports, I think is going to have a significant impact on our sport specifically in the next, you know, four or five years here in North America. Um, I think that it was telling that, you know, the expansion of the World Cup uh, to 48 teams was going to happen in North America. Um, I think we will see a World Cup um, like none other here, um, not just from a revenue perspective, but from a fan engagement perspective. Um, there's a significant opportunity for our sport to grow in, in a way that uh, probably the last opportunity we had was was going back to 94. Right. And the significant impact that the World Cup had on the development of the game in, in North America then. Um, I think this will be 10, 20 fold. I'm excited. I can't believe I'm alive for this. <laughs> Super excited to see this. <laughs> Super excited to see this. Yeah, oh. and, and, and sorry, I, you know, I, I don't know what I don't know what what it's going to look like in the next five or six years. I'm, I'm excited like you are. Right. I think that there's this opportunity to engage um, whole generations of, uh, you know, and a new generation to the sport. You know, I think back to, you know, some of the fantastic work that the, the NFL did on, um, I think it was in September, did a game in London. Um, I'm going to get the teams wrong, probably Atlanta, maybe Jacksonville. They played a game in in London. Uh, and because of the timing of the game, you know, it was being broadcast here, they had created a uh, a collaboration with Disney and Pixar and Toy Storyed the game. <laughs> like it was, you know, an animated game. Um, and I think that, that that ingenuity and creativity around how you engage younger generations and, and make them. Uh, or different generations and make them fans of your sport is something that we will start to see bleed into, you know, the more traditional sort of North or traditional sports around the world that are sort of relatively um, nuanced in, in, in the U S and Canada. You know, I think yeah, the ability for fans to now get a peek behind the curtain in some ways and, you know, understand what happens behind the scenes in sport is one of those things that I think we, you'll see more and more, um, which will then create, you know, a new affinity for, for the sports like ours, like cricket, like rugby um, around the world. Yeah, I agree. Especially with the digitalization and all this content. Um, yeah. Earl, this was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time for joining us on the One Stock Nation podcast today. Always my pleasure. Anytime.